Last basketball season, the NBA came out with a, a pretty cool slogan as the playoffs was going on. And the slogan was simple. It said, the NBA, where amazing happens, or where amazing things happen. And I really like that slogan. And one day I was just thinking about that slogan. I said, you know, I know some other places where some amazing things happen. And one of those places used to be, or still is, my mother's kitchen. Amen. <laughs> now let me pause right there and put a comma. My mother and my wife's kitchen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Get myself in trouble. Amen. Some amazing things happen in, in their kitchen. How many of you grew up with some good home cooking? Amen. Had a mother or a grandmother who, who used to cook for you. Yeah. My mom's kitchen was a place where amazing things took place. And she cherished that space, especially when it came down to baking. She took baking very seriously. When she used to bake a cake, she used to demand and tell us that, that we had to walk softly unless the cake failed. We came into the kitchen. She used to pick up her broom and just say, what are you in here for? You know I'm cooking a cake. Because she, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but <laughs> uh, believe that, hey, if you, if you shake, if you move too much, the, the cake would fall and it wouldn't look the same. She took that very seriously. That's pretty much the only time that she kicked me out of somewhere, amen. Only time that she rejected me is when she wanted to protect that cake. Because she didn't just want it to taste good. She wanted it to look good. But the funny thing about my mother's cakes is this is that she would bake them. Then she would put the frosting on them, make them look so good. Then she would put it in her little glass container, and she would sit it on the dining room table, and then she would make us wait to eat it. <laughs> and it'll just be sitting there, and we'll be, man, I can't wait to eat that cake. When can we eat it? It's for tomorrow's dinner. <laughs> for a whole day, we just lusted after that cake. And when we finally tasted, it was worth every second that we had to wait for. That cake was precious to her. So she cherished it. She protected it. She showed it off. And then we were able to indulge in it. The church is a place where way more amazing things happen. In the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when the community of believers come together, we get to experience some, some great things, some things that taste good, some things that, that feel good, some things that are good. The church is a place where God transforms people. The local church is a place where the blind can come and hear the gospel and see. The, the church is a place where the dead become alive. The church is a place where the broken are made whole. The church is a place where the rejected find family and community. The church is a place where the hopeless find joy, where servant leaders proclaim the gospel and live it out. The church is a place where grace is experienced, where forgiveness is experienced, where true biblical love is experienced. The place is a place where God's people can come 
and become mature. The place is a place. The church is a place where repentance takes place. It's a place where the Holy Spirit has his way, where the Holy Spirit dwells. It's a place where people who have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ come together with these things in common and praise his name. It's a place where songs of Zion is sung. Deliverance takes place. It is a place like none other. And the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 3, verse 8 through 15, that the church should be a place of harmony and that we should protect the atmosphere of the church and do everything we can to show people that we cherish it because Christ cherishes it. Titus chapter 3, verse 18 through 15, as we conclude our series today, the vibrant and connected church, we can stand for the reading of God's word. The word of God reads, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning them him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send you Artemis and Tychus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send, you, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. Today we want to talk about cherishing the place where amazing happens. Cherishing the place where amazing happens. And if we are going to cherish, if we are going to protect the testimony of the gospel in our local church, and if we're going to be a city set upon a hill, as a church that is going to move our community from chaos to Christ. There's three things that we need to do, three things that we need to adhere to that I see in this text that, that Titus uh, receives from Paul. And the first thing is that we must allow the good news to dominate the atmosphere. We must allow the good news to dominate the atmosphere. In verse 8, Paul tells Titus, he says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul tells Titus that if, if, if the church is going to be what God has said it to be, and if it's going to be a place of harmony and a place where God is moving, we need to make sure that what's at the forefront 
is the good news of Jesus Christ. He says this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. I want you to be persistent in proclaiming these things. And what has Titus been proclaiming? He's been proclaiming that salvation is the work of God. In verses 4 through 8, Paul does that a phenomenal job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, succinctly uh, giving us a, a great look and view at the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see in verses 4 through 8 that Paul uh, tells Titus uh, and shows Titus and un unveils and, and focuses on the gospel. In verse 4, he, he's talking about how when God's goodness and the loving kindness of Christ shows up, he did something. And what did he do? He saved us. And he lets us know that he did not save us through our works. He did not save us out of any merit of our own, but he saved us according to his own mercy. And the way that he saved us was through the preaching of the gospel and as a result of the Holy Spirit taking our hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, regenerating us. We are saved. And we are given a, a new life. We are born again, Paul is stressing to Titus. Because God poured out on us richly Jesus Christ. So that being justified by his grace, we may have an eternal hope. Eternal hope. Titus has heard this time and time and time again. Uh, Paul trusts Titus with the gospel. He trusts him with this message. In other words, Titus would not be in charge or overseeing the churches at Crete. But Paul still knows the importance of the gospel and believes that the gospel should be the center of the church. So he says it again and again and again. See, the gospel cannot become old to us. The gospel must be what we preach and proclaim every single time. The gospel cannot become culturally archaic. It cannot be something that we just dibble and dabble in. It has to be what everything is filtered through. And it has to be the foundation of everything we preach. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he, he, he talks about this ministry and how he resolved with the church at Corinth to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Paul wasn't saying, that the only sermon he's going to preach is a preach is a, is a sermon about Jesus' cross or a sermon about Jesus actually dying on the cross. But what he was saying is every single subject, no matter what the subject is, is going to come from what Christ did from us. Uh, it's, he's going to exhort us to obey Christ as a result of what he did for us. And he's going to remind us that we are able to serve him and we are empowered by Christ because of what he did for us. The gospel, as Tim Keller said, is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z. It's, it's, it's what everything is filtered through. And if we are going to protect and, and have a, a harmonious congregation, if this place is going to be a place where we are experiencing baptisms by the grace of God, and we are experiencing people being sanctified, and we are experiencing great testimonies. It is because the gospel is at the forefront of our ministry and not something that we just resort to after we've talked about everything else. 
This is to be a gospel factory. <laughs> and a gospel factory inevitably turns this church into a testimony factory. It's a place where people can come and see and say, there's something different about these Forest Baptist members. These people are crazy. Every time I come through the door, they're talking about what God has done in their lives. Have you ever went to someone's house um, who either built the house from the ground up or renovated their house? Have you ever visited someone's house like that? Man, you visit someone's house who, who worked on their house or built their house from the ground up. As soon as you come in and it's your first time over, they're going to show that house, house off, ain't they? Well, you know, uh, when I first got this house, it didn't look nothing like this. We uh, added this room on over here. You should have saw the room before. It was real small. It was real tight. This porch wasn't here, and we put this up. And, and this bedroom was just a hot mess. It was mold, and it was old, and it was cold. But, you know, we got a plan together, and we renovated. We did this, we did this, we did this. And, and we're just happy to live here because they saw how it used to look. And they're happy and excited because it no longer looks that way. Well, the church of Jesus Christ is to be that way as a result of people recognizing that God did something for them that they could not do for themselves. And when people come through the door, not out of pride, but out of humility because we understand it was done by grace, we're to show them, hey, God renovated this. Oh, my goodness, did he renovate it. You should have seen how this looked 10 years ago. You should have seen how what used to come out of this mouth 10 years ago. I used to make sailors blush. You should have seen this bedroom 10 years ago. This bedroom was dirty, and people was in and out of it, and I didn't have no kind of standards. But when God got a hold of it, he cleaned up this bedroom. <laughs> the gospel is to be proclaimed, as we see throughout Titus. Titus 2, chapter 1, uh, Paul exhorts Titus to teach uh, what, of course, is sound doctrine, which is the, the gospel. He, he encourages Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, to declare these things. In chapter 3, verse 1, to remind people of these things. In chapter 3, verse 8, to insist on these things. And what's beautiful about a ministry in a church that is founded on the gospel, where the gospel is at the forefront of everything, is what it motivates people to do. Look at verse 8. It says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, that those who are saved, those who are Christians, in order that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul says, listen, Titus, insist on these things. Remind people about the person and work of Jesus Christ in order that those who are his, in order that they will be motivated and they will devote themselves to good works. What are good works? Good works are acts of virtue empowered by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. <laughs> he says, basically, preach the gospel. Remind people of what our Savior did in order that they will be motivated to do great acts of virtue, not for their own glory, but for his glory and his name's sake. Now, this is important. This is important. Because the gospel has to be what motivates us to serve the Lord. Not good advice. Not 
empty commandments. Preaching that just constantly tells people, and when you hear someone constantly tell, tell you what you have to do, and it is separated from the character of God and what Christ has done for you and how Christ empowers you to do what you feel you cannot do will only make you feel guilty. If someone comes up to you and says, you know, let's say if you got a little change, uh, maybe you just got a, your, your taxes back or something, and they know it, and you just got a bunch of money, and they say, you know, you, you should. You, the Bible says you're supposed to give to the poor. And I've got some family members that's pretty poor, and, and you know them too. You need to help your family out some more. Right? You're going to look at them, and you're going to either feel guilty, be upset because they're trying to check you, or uh, feel, feel down or, or condemned or whatever because it's just an empty statement, an empty commandment. But if that same person uh, was to come up to you and not direct you in that way, but say, hey, you know, I'm just so thankful for what God has, has given us and the blessings that he's given us and that he has given us money in which we can, we can not just use on ourselves but use for other people uh, because of what Christ has done for us. Isn't it amazing how Christ was, was poor and, and how Christ gave to us and, 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 and how Christ continues to, to give to us and how Christ was all about the poor and the needy and the broken. Isn't it amazing what he does for us? It's going to make you feel, feel differently because it's, it's centered on Christ and not on our own works. A, a church that is, is protecting harmony, a church that is, is, is moving in the right direction is a church where the gospel is what mo is motivating people. And that's what we see, uh, what amazes me in verses 12 through, through 15. As, as Paul is, is getting ready to conclude, as he's concluding this letter, uh, he, he's talking to to other people, and he's giving them instructions on what to do. And Paul, while he's giving them instructions on what to do, he's not giving them a, a long list or making them feel bad or, or, or begging them to do these things. He's simply asking. And, and you can, as we read these verses, you kind of get a feeling that he's confident that these people are going to do what he said he's going to do. Why? Not because he's just asking, but because they love Jesus. Because they recognize that Jesus is the one who died for them. And they have devoted their lives to the one who devoted his life to them. He says, listen, when I send Artemis and Tychus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So he's uh, talking uh, uh, to, to, to two men, or, or saying, when I, uh, to Titus, and he says, when I, I send Artemis, Artemis, we don't know who he is, and this other guy, guy Tychus, uh, to you. Uh, Tychus was one of Paul's mailmen, so to speak. He often met Paul in jail and delivered letters uh, from Paul to churches like Ephesus and other places. He says, when I, I send them to you, do your best to come to me. So when they come and relieve you in Crete, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to, to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace and peace be with you. Paul's not begging. <laughs> Paul's asking. 
And he has confidence that they're going to come and do the things that he's done because of what Christ did for them. And because there's an atmosphere and there's something going on in the heart of, of the people that Paul has ministered to in the past. Because, because Paul was not preaching himself, he was preaching Christ. He was preaching Christ. Good works is one of the themes of this book. It's one of the themes throughout the book of Titus. It's, it's mentioned 11 times in, four, uh, in Titus, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. It's mentioned 11 times and, and four times here. Because we are to be get, doing good works out of what Christ has done to us. And that's one of the ways we protect harmony in the church. So as we continue and we look at the bottom last part of verse 8, it says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. These things are excellent. Insisting on the gospel, preaching the gospel consistently is profitable. Doing good works is profitable. It is excellent. And now he's going to show us what is not profitable and what is not excellent. So then he goes and he says, but avoid foolish con controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Unprofitable and worthless. So he goes from telling us about what is profitable, and that is preaching the gospel and living out the gospel, to what is unprofitable, that is speaking a, 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 a that is un unprofitable conversation. So the second thing we must do to protect the harmony of a church and to protect this presence of, of amazing that the Lord gives us through his Holy Spirit is we must avoid unprofitable conversations. We must Speak profitable things by talking about the gospel and avoid unprofitable things. And he gives us a list of these unprofitable things. He says, avoid them. Avoid them. Now remember, this church at Crete had some serious problems. And one of the problems that they had was that there were false teachers, people who was preaching salvation by works. And the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 11, that these preachers were tearing up the church because they were basically putting a weight on people. They weren't preaching the profitable gospel. But now he's talking not only to these teachers, he's talking to the members. He says, avoid foolish controversies. Foolish controversies is just someone, uh, avoid playing the devil's advocate. Avoid being the person who always has a counter-argument. We've all met those persons. You know, it's going, to, it's going to be sunny outside tomorrow. Yeah, but it's supposed to rain on Tuesday. And technically, uh, last time they said it was going to be sunny, it rained, so I don't know why, you know, you know, that's not exactly what he's talking about, but that's the type of thing for us today. It's avoid being, being argumentative and, 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 and talking about, arguing about foolish things. Foolish things. And in a theological sense, when it comes to, to the things about God, uh, avoid trying to always argue about the latest theological topic or, or the latest heretic for the sake of doing it. Avoid foolish controversies. Then he says avoid genealogies, genealogies. Avoid arguing about, as they were accustomed to, these, these early Jews, avoid arguing about who you are a descendant of. They would sit there for, for hours, I'm sure, and just argue about, you know, I'm a descendant of this person, and I'm a descendant of this person, and we're descendants of this tribe. Probably didn't have a, a bit of truth in it, but they would do that to one-up each other and start arguing about that. Now, we see in the Bible 
as we look at the Gospels, as we look at, uh, at Matthew and other Gospels, that genealogies is listed. As we look at the Old Testament, genealogies is listed. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to put that there um, in order to, to keep track of the lineage of Jesus and show where Jesus was going to come from. And as a proof to those who were reading uh, these documents, uh, that, that these are real people in the actual events. So he's not saying that we can't keep up with our family tree, but what he's saying is we shouldn't be arguing about it. That's what he was telling that church. We shouldn't be bashing. You know, this isn't exactly what he was saying, but if I was him and I was writing a, church to the, a letter to the church today, I'd say, uh, avoid getting into crazy stuff with horoscopes. Huh? What you say? Did you say that? Avoid reading the newspaper and putting all your stock in the fact that you're a cancer. Oh, I'm a can you know, cancers are so emotional, and I'm just that way. Yeah. I'm a Libra. You know, all Libras, I know, you're a sinner. <laughs> and the reason you go off is because that sin nature gets the best of you, because you're not hiding yourself in Christ. <laughs> Ooh-wee. No, he didn't. Then he goes on, he says, dissensions, dissensions. They were just, uh, uh, dissensions are just divisions. He said, avoid divisive conversations. Avoid silly arguments. Avoid majoring on minor things. You know, I recently talked to a, a, a missionary, a, a pastor now in a, in a different place, a uh, different country, who was here in America. And he said that the reason he left the American church and pastoring is because he got tired of arguing over what color the, the carpet should be. Paul in, 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 in 1 Corinthians, uh, I believe that's, that's chapter 2, he, he talks about this. As the church at Corinth, they were divided. They were divided. Actually, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me. And they were arguing over who to follow. They were arguing over who to follow in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Amen. <laughs> and some were saying, listen, I follow Apollos. Others were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I, I follow Christ. And, and Paul was saying, listen, uh, we shouldn't be following any of these people. Shouldn't be following a preacher. Shouldn't be walking around and, and saying, I follow this person, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I, should, I follow this person. But, but rather, we all are just following Christ. People in the church, they, they get divided. Oh, this is my favorite preacher. Or oh, this is my favorite Sunday school teacher. Or oh, this is my favorite person. And we become cliquish. Clicks in the church. Amen. Gang banging in the church. This is my circle. Exclude other people. We have been bought with a price. We all have Christ in common. We are a, a new people. We are one new man. We shouldn't have circles and cliques and be excluding people and not talking to certain people because they don't look the same way we look or dress the same way we dress or live in the same neighborhood that we live or work the same type of job that we, we work. All of those walls have been torn down as a result of what Jesus did for us. As Christians, we should be open and we should just be, be, be 
to be communing and, and communicating with all people because we realize that God has done something in all of our lives that we cannot do in ourselves. Then Paul says, quarrels about the law. Now the church was just quarreling. They, they were just quarreling about the law, arguing about the law, persistently and constantly. Things that didn't matter. These false teachers would do that. We're no longer under the law, but grace. Basically what he's saying is what he's been saying the, the whole time in this book. That as a result of what Christ has done for us, as a result of what Christ has done for us, it should humble us. Uh, it should make us submissive. It should make us open to each other. We should be willing to share our lives when we stop and think about his goodness with each other. Because he shared his life with us when we were yet still sinners. Still sinners. Turn real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. When you get there, say, got it. All right. So these type of people, the people who are, are constantly arguing, who constantly are trying to pick a fight, you know, always looking to fight, always looking to argue, Paul says, uh, uh, we, we need to avoid these type of arguments. And, and eventually he's going to say we need to avoid these type of people. But listen to, to why. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, the church of Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring has the same type of problems. Teach and urge these things if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sound teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You know, people who are always looking to argue and fight, at the end of the day, he says they're proud and they're looking to gain something. They're looking to look more spiritual than everyone else. And they're doing this because they want everyone to think that they're so smart, that they're great philosophers, that they love Jesus so much. And this is what's behind the heart of a, a heretic in a church, a person who does not really uh, stand firm on sound doctrine. They want to come up with some new saying that is unbiblical or challenge the, the way that the church has historically viewed scripture and the major things in scripture so that everyone can look at them and be like, wow. That's neat. You think on a different level. Yes, you do. <laughs> but those are the type of people we need to avoid. I was in a coffee shop recently, and there's a, a guy uh, that, that comes to the coffee shop that I go to. And uh, here's a, a side note, a quick rabbit trail. You know, I spend a lot of hours at this coffee shop. I love the smell of coffee, and I love uh, just the, the aroma, and that's where I, I do a lot of uh, my reading and studying. And you know, recently, my wife told me that I come home smelling like coffee after all this time. I said, I said do I? She said, okay, anyway. So I'm at this coffee shop. I'm leaving, not knowing that I'm just irking like coffee. So if you ever hug me, I just smell like coffee. Please excuse me, amen. So I'm at this coffee shop, and it's, it's this guy here who I often would talk about just the gospel with. He was going to a church, a very strong church. 
uh, here in Louisville that where the pastors just love the Lord and the gospel is preached and proclaimed. And I asked him how things were going at the church and how things were going with his small group. And uh, he basically said, listen, I, I no longer go to church and I no longer am a part of this small group. And uh, I said, why? And I began to talk to him and he just put up all these smoke screens. And at the end of the day, he says, uh, I just don't, I just think that we, we stress the gospel a, a little too much and we're a little too hard in talking about sin. And I began to talk to him more and I said, well, um, what's your, who's become your favorite preacher? And he named a couple of preachers, both who are heretics, both who uh, are very creative speakers, very intellectual, but who are not holding on to sound doctrine. So by listening to them and by, by submerging himself in them, his, his heart was turned away from true doctrine. And, and that can easily happen to any of us if we're not careful and if we're not avoiding false teachers. And not only just false teachers, that can happen to us. Our heart can be cold, become cold to Christ if we are putting ourselves around people who are always speaking negativity about the church, about Christ, about the deacons, about their brothers and sisters in Christ. People who are always gossiping. And what's happening in their heart is there's a war going on. They want to be the center of attention. They want people to need them. They want to feel a certain way and feel empowered and to be right all the time. And it can draw our heart away from our Lord. It can draw our heart away from our Savior. Turn over a couple pages to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. This is exactly what Titus, uh, what Paul is telling Timothy again when he writes Timothy. He says these words. Remind them of these things. Does that sound familiar? Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So he says, instead of listening to unprofitable things, Instead of not giving people grace and and being hard on people, instead of always questioning the Bible and questioning what we've been taught and and questioning what Christ says, he says these words. He says, listen, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, King James Version, study to show yourself approved. Study. He says, study. Know the Bible. Put your mind on profitable things. But avoid, once again, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, which is a a, a disease, uh, especially back then, uh, that that ate away at at tissue at, at a very rapid pace. He says, listen. When you put yourself around irreverent babble, it it, it tears people apart. It ruins hearers. It leads to more ungodliness. It spreads. That's exactly what James says in in, in his book. When he talks about the tongue, how it's the smallest member among the body, but how it does the most damage. How it it sets a, a whole force on fire. It just starts in one place, and then before you know it, boom, the whole force, boom, the whole force is on fire. You're watching on the news like, oh my goodness, acres and acres of trees are burning, houses are burning because of something, because of a small fire. It's the same way with our words. 
And harmony in the church is going to come when we, as members of the church, as members of the body of Christ, become pop-up blockers. Spiritual pop-up blockers. When we learn to turn negativity and gospel and gossip back to Christ. It's like I'm driving, right? But the Bible does say this, but, you know, I think we just interpret it too strictly. You know, sin really ain't that bad. Everybody sins. They just take it too seriously. Well, that's what the Bible said about sin and fornication back then, but it's the 21st century, girl. You got to let him try before he buy. Oh, you know, I, I tell you, that, that minister... Up there, he, he did do a good job today. He did, he, he taught the word, but I, I tell you, I can't stand what he preached because he preached too long. Can you, can you stand when he preached like, no, I can't either. It's a negativity, eating and eating away. Girl, I'm on my way home to watch my soap out. It's on for three to four. The guy preached 40 minutes. Amen. <laughs> Y'all so silly. <laughs> Verse 17. And their talk was spread like gangrene among them. Hymenius and Philetus, who has swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So Paul tells this to Timothy. He says, listen, this has already happened in these two brothers because they were just uh, entertaining uh, thoughts that, that weren't Christ-centered. Their soul began to de de decay, began to go, go off. So why should we avoid unprofitable conversations? Well, number one, we should avoid unprofitable com conversations because, uh, because we are to be reflectors of God. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, that God is not the author of confusion, but he's a God of peace. We avoid these unprofitable conversations because they can just lead us to confusion and, and lead us to, uh, down a road of negativity. God expects us to turn from unprofitable speech, and, and we can do this under the power of his Holy Spirit. Not in order that we would earn, earn our salvation or look good in front of people, but as a result of, of knowing what Christ has done for us and appreciating that God has saved us and transformed us from darkness into light. And we should praise God that Jesus died to atone for our failures in this area. And when we fail, we can, we can get up and repent and, and, and aim for perfection again, but we can praise God that he not only atones for our failures, but he empowers us and he can keep us from, a, from habitually failing. The third way that we protect harmony and unity in the church and, and keep this place a place where amazing things happen is we learn to lovingly deal with the divisive person. We learn to lovingly deal with a divisive person. The first thing we do is we allow the good news to dominate our atmosphere. Secondly, we lovingly deal with the divisive. Uh, we, we don't 
we run away from unprofitable speech, and, and lastly, we lovely, lovingly deal with a divisive person. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, we hear that and we say, man, is that really loving? Warn them once and then twice and have nothing to do with them? We want to remember as we think about Titus, number one, that uh, Paul is telling Titus and he's, he's really talking to Titus about these false teachers. And he tells them in verse 13 of chapter 1, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. These false teachers were teaching uh, really bad doctrine that was really hurting people, causing division. But even outside of this scope, as we think about the, the average uh, Christian, uh, we still should, should really take this to heart. And, and the problem that we have when we read this and thinking about this is this is unloving is that as Christians and because of the way our society has deemed love, um, this, this seems unloving. You know, our society teaches that you are failing to love a person if you confront that person. You are failing to love a person if what you're telling them to do or not to do is going to make them be unhappy. We teach that everyone is free to do whatever they want to do. Just do it. Be whoever you want to be. If you love him, man, you love him. But see, God defines love differently because God is love. That's what John said. Love is not confronting, uh, love is not us not confronting people, but love is us confronting people. Christians who are not living up to the, the calling, their calling. Love is us confronting people who are unrepentant of sin. The Proverbs said in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 3, he says, hidden love. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. In other words, if you really love someone, then you will rebuke them rather than hiding your love and not telling them. If you really love someone, you will speak up and let them know that what they are doing is, is a sin against God. And it's really hurting their soul. You wouldn't let a family member sit there and drink poison in front of you. You know, if they came up to you and be like, you know, you're drinking that poison, it's killing you. And they say, yeah, but it feels good. Man, it tastes good. And it's what I would know. You wouldn't let them do that because you know that it's corrupting them and that eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to take them out. Because you love them. It's the same way with, with sin. It's the same way when a, a Christian, a believer in the church is habitually sinning. And their sin has become open to all. Or they're continually sinning against you. It's the same way. They are sinning against God and they are hurting and corrupting their, their own soul. 
And our job is to, to go to them and to, to love God's way. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. He is pure. But he also is a God of wrath. And a God of correction, a God of discipline. So we can't just say that love is, is this. When God is love and it, he encompasses more than just making us feel good. Proverbs 28, verse 23 says, whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Whoever rebukes a, a wise man, whoever rebukes one who is willing to listen, will find more favor with that man than the one who allowed that man to continue to walk and to go down the path of sin. A second reason why we uh, are, are hesitant to confront Christians in the church who are divisive and who uh, are constantly causing friction and gossiping and whispering and busybodies is because we think that we don't have a right to judge them. Because we hear people in the world say all the time, hey, only God can ju judge me. And we get that from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, right? Which, which, which was talks about how we should not judge one another. But we take it out of context. The Bible does not say that Christians cannot judge each other. It says that Christians cannot be hypocritical in judging each other. I can't go to you and call you out, he says, for having a speck in your eye. And I'm sitting around with a log in my eye. I can't call you out for stealing $5 out of the offering plate. And I'm running around robbing a bank. He says, no, check your heart. You get the log out of your own eye. You make sure that you are not habitually walking in sin. You make sure, and then when you confront them, you don't confront them out of pride. You don't confront them to make them feel horrible. You don't confront them in order that you can one-up them, but you confront them because you want to see them restored to Christ. You confront them out of love and out of care for their soul. We rebuke to restore, not to tear down. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. He says that we, as Christians, we are to judge those who are inside, inside of the body of Christ. It is our job as Christians to lead other people to repentance. Remember, in uh, Titus chapter 2, uh, when, when, when verses 11 through 15, when, when Paul is talking about the grace of God, remember we talked about how the grace of God trains us. God's favor, part of his blessing is him training us. Remember we said that one of the manifestations of grace is God's people. God trains us to renounce ungodliness by putting Christ-centered people in our lives, by putting your brother and sister in your life, the person who's sitting next to you is a part of the body of Christ. You are no longer an individual in the eyes of God. You are a part of one new person. You are a part of one body. Therefore, you have a right to confront me if I'm sinning publicly or even privately and you know that it's not glorifying God. You have a right to lovingly come to me and say, my brother, my pastor. The Bible says this clearly. As, as ministers and brothers in Christ. 
as we think about this, we want to remind ourselves that Paul is not telling this to Titus just because he's making up something, but he's telling this to Titus because he loves Jesus and he loves the church. And also because this was Jesus' example. Jesus put this forth in the scriptures. When we go to Matthew chapter 18, we see that Jesus is teaching his disciples how to conduct the church, how to oversee the church. And he's training them and teaching them on, on how to deal with sin. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what is he saying? If your brother sins against you, if your brother uh, does uh, commits a sin against you, you are to go and you are to confront your brother about that sin. You are to tell your brother about that sin. You're not to go to, uh, to Lucy Lu uh, uh, Loose Lips or Jenny Gotta Tell It. You go to your brother. You say, man, listen, you did this. This was unloving. This was hurtful. This was done. It just seems like it was really just done out of pride and, and wanting to show me up. This was done. You call your brother to, to repentance. Or if you know that he's walking and going to strip clubs, sleeping around, getting drunk on, on Saturday night, posting on Facebook and then coming and waving his hand, talking about God is good. You go to your brother. You confront your brother. If your brother does not repent, or sister, y'all not more holy than brothers, amen. If your brother or sister does not repent, you go, you get two or three more witnesses. Two or three more people who, who are, are not walking in habitual sin who, and who is not drinking with them and partying. You confront him on that sin. You wait for him to repent. If he does not repent, you take it to the church. You take it to your elders. You, you, you let them know about it and and then the, the church is to make a the church is to make a decision ultimately and, and say this is we, we got to break ways with this person. And this is what's known as church discipline. Church discipline. Mark Devers says that church discipline is the act of correcting sin in the life of the body, including the possible final step of excluding a profession a professing Christian from membership in the church and participating in the Lord's Supper because of serious unrepentant sin. See, the church has such, many churches have such a bad reputation because we have ignored scripture. We look just like the world in many cases because we are not being objects of grace and going to people and getting in each other's lives and knowing each other. We've made it just a Sunday and every now and then Wednesday thing and high and by and, and not connected to anyone in the church and, and we don't let people get close enough to, to know us in order that they can see the areas of our lives where we are habitually and purposely falling short. And we end up struggling, and, 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 and Christianity becomes such a drudgery to us because we are not allowing the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that is in our brothers and sisters to minister to us. See, Jesus, right before this, in Matthew chapter 16, Verse 17 gives this authority to the church. He gives it to the church. 
He says, blessed are you, when Peter makes his confession that, that Jesus is the Christ, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. He's saying those who are professing Christians, those who establish a, a, a local church, Peter, those who are standing on this confession and who are walking in the spirit. He says, you all have the keys. You, what are keys? Keys help you come in a place and out of a place. A person who carries keys normally has authority to that place. He says, you all have authority to be able to come together and identify sin and either accept a person into fellowship or reject them from fellowship in order that we would protect and cherish what is amazing. If half of the church is walking in, in public sin <laughs> and the other half is, is not or, or doing, doing okay, what's, what's the testimony going to be in the community? Are we really going to experience the Holy Spirit at work in a dynamic way if our church is lukewarm? Tight, but it's right. Amen. I'm about, to, I'm about to wind it up. Amen. This isn't the first time that Paul talks about this. Paul talks about this throughout his epistles, throughout his letters, because it is important. It's not something small. It, it is something that is important. It's something that we, we should really take heed to. John MacArthur says these words. He says the result of ignoring church discipline are catastrophic. Gross public sin is overlooked, ignored, and tolerated. The fellowship of believers deteriorates to the point where it's in, in, uh, distinguishable from the unbelieving world. God's people forfeit the credibility of their testimony, and deceived sinners happily remain in the local church unaware of their need for true repentance. Because we don't stand up to the divisive person or the person who's walking in sin. When you go home, read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you'll read about a, a young man who was walking in open sin, and the church at Corinth did nothing about it. And Paul said, you should be mourning about it. He says, in fact, reject him from the fellowship. Reject him from the fellowship. Give him over to Satan. Don't hang around him. Not to break him. But he says, in order, in order that that young man would come back to repentance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we see Paul is writing a letter, and he's talking about a sinner who they have rejected from fellowship. And he says, listen, receive him back into fellowship, for this person has repented. We see the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul says, avoid the person who is, who is a flatterer, flatterer and who is, is constantly uh, talking gossip. See the same thing in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm sorry, is, is, is not about the flatterer. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is about the, the person who is, is lazy and constantly mooching off of everybody in the church. <laughs> Romans chapter 16 is about the flatterer who's, who constantly is putting out seeds of discord. 
The body of Christ has to look radically different from the world. Now, we don't have a, a practice and policy of church discipline. But by God's grace, we're moving toward it. And over the next year or so, we as, as, as elders and, and, and deacons, as, as ministers and deacons, we, we're going to be putting our heads together and searching the scripture to come up with a, 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 a practice that glorifies the Lord. One that shows people that we're serious about the gospel, we're serious about our relationships, and one that also shows that we're serious about each other remaining in the faith and persevering in the faith, and that we're serious about sin and open sin. The only way that people are going to take the church seriously is if the church looks differently than the world. Just like my mom with that broom in the kitchen. We've got to protect the church. My mom with that broom, she probably wouldn't have hit me. <laughs> Maybe not, I don't know. And, and she didn't have that broom because she hated me. She, she wasn't threatening me because she was mean, archaic, or rude. It's because she saw that experience of us coming around the table and fellowship and eating as something that was precious. And God is not, God, he's not mean, but he loves his church. He loves it enough to allow his son to put on human clothes. He loved it enough to allow his son to, to become a, a God man. He loved it enough to allow his innocent son to suffer in our place. Be crucified. And resurrect. Will you help me? Will you help me keep peace and harmony in this body? In order that Newburgh, Petersburg, and Louisville will know that these people are serious about the gospel. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you, Father. We thank you, Father God, for your word. And we pray for wisdom, Father God, as we grow in grace together. And as we seek to protect your jewel, your church, we pray for wisdom, Father God, and for courage, Lord, that you will help us to lovingly go up to each other and point out dangerous and habitual sin in each other's life. We pray, Father God, that you will give us the courage to do so, not out of fear, but with a sound mind, knowing that you and your word is powerful and it can change that person's heart. We pray that we will reject the culture's notion of love. We will reject the culture's definition of what it means to be judgmental. And that we will remind each other that we are a part of the body of Christ and that we can judge each other. Though we're not to judge people who are outside of the church, for that is your job. Help us, Father God, to be evangelistic. Help us to be a church that moves the community towards Christ and not that co-signs with the community in chaos. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.